Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, we look back on the year in influence. This is the Influence Watch podcast, Year in Review. This week on the Influence Watch podcast, we're stepping back from the latest news and instead reviewing the year in influence that just passed. We've seen Hollywood, media, and politics rocked by allegations of widespread misconduct, messes made by the Obama administration cleaned up in the regulatory and litigation arenas, and even some normal politics. Mike, let's start with Perv NATO. So in our first episode uh, a couple weeks ago, we we looked at the fallout of allegations of widespread sexual misconduct in the wake of the revelations uh, that Harvey Weinstein, the Hollywood producer, had engaged in widespread sexual misconduct. And we suggested that that might have been the tip of the iceberg uh, as more and more uh, women came forward to allege that there had been widespread sexual misconduct in media, politics, and entertainment. Uh, And that has continued in the last few weeks. Uh, Left-wing documentarian Morgan Spurlock from Super Size Me, uh, he admitted without even an accusation that he had settled a sexual harassment complaint. Uh, PBS anchor Tavis Smiley uh, was suspended for having inappropriate relationships with multiple subordinates. Uh, These are allegations he has denied. Uh, A former employee of the NFL network accused numerous uh, former NFL players who now uh, had been uh, analysts for the NFL network of sexual harassment. Uh, The New Yorker fired its star reporter, Ryan Lizza, for unspecified sexual misconduct allegations, which Lizza denies. Uh, Mario Batali, the celebrity chef, had to take leave of absence from his businesses after uh, women came forward and accused him of sexual misconduct. Uh, And lefty actor T.J. Miller, uh, who was the voice of one of the characters in the one of the worst movies ever made, the Emoji Movie, uh, who who actually gave an interview where he said that you know the Emoji Movie is going to be a great sign of resistance to to Donald Trump. Um, well, it turns out in college he was accused of sexual misconduct. <laughs> um, again, allegations he denies, but it was reported in the Daily Beast that he had done some some very nefarious things. Uh, and then in politics, uh, more congressmen have been accused of sexual misconduct. There were. Uh, there are rumors flying around Washington that many, many more are going are going to be accused. Uh, the Republicans have already lost a seat in the United States Senate after its can- after their candidate was accused uh, credibly of sexual misconduct with a minor. The this isn't going away, um, and it looks like it's if anything accelerating. And uh, but, but if you want to know kind of what's going on behind that, we'd, we'd encourage you to go back and look at our first episode, our episode one, uh, to, uh, to see what we, the, the effect, the fallout that we think this is going to have. And we've seen no, no reason to change, our, to change our, our expectation that it's going to be a lot of fallout. No, the momentum is not slowed. Um, now, this show, we also want to... Uh, deal with some of these, uh, what you could call cleanups after the Obama administration. Um, there have been regulations reversed, for instance. The, the first, most obvious one would be net neutrality. Yeah, in our, in our most recent podcast, our episode three, 
uh, we discussed the whole battle over net neutrality. Uh, and I'd encourage you to go back to to watch that watch that podcast or listen to it. Uh, in 2015, these regulations on internet service providers are passed through on a party line vote. Well, in late December, they were reversed on a party line vote. Yep. Uh, There's also the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, that was another uh, major regulatory change. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, sure. The Obama administration uh, had agreed to this treaty that wasn't really a treaty because if it had been a treaty, it would have been not ratified by the Senate, which would have meant that it wouldn't have been law, which is very weird. Um, uh, but it doesn't matter anymore because President Trump announced that the United States was no longer going to be part of it uh, as of June. Uh, the U.S., this saves the U.S. taxpayer from having to contribute to the uh, International Green Climate Fund, which is simply a transfer from industrialized nations to uh, not as industrialized nations. Uh, the U.S. will not have to enact onerous job-threatening environmental regulations to comply, uh, and that will probably be reflected in lower than in energy prices that are lower than they otherwise would have been. Um, obviously, this is highly controversial. Uh, the environmentalists are adamant that the U.S. should be a part of this, uh, but the uh, as of as of this moment, the United States, or as of I think 2018, is when it actually goes into effect. Uh, the United States will have withdrawn. Yeah, and as I recall, if you study some of the other countries uh, that weren't as proudly defiant of uh, the Paris Climate Agreement, but nonetheless, they are discovering that, well, actually, maybe we won't do the things that we promised we would do. Uh, but let's, uh, let's switch to another regulatory arena, one that where you're a particular expert, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, which is probably not something most Americans have heard of, but nonetheless something that can have a huge effect on the economy and the workplace for ordinary people. Uh, tell us about some of the developments there this past year. Sure. So the National Labor Relations Board is the enforcement arm for the National Labor Relations Act, which is the law that, uh, as it has been amended, that governs the relations between labor, especially labor unions, and management. And so during the Obama administration, the National Labor Relations Board was stocked with former union attorneys and took a very pro-labor union approach to interpreting the National Labor Relations Act. New government, new National Labor Relations Board. Now it's management side attorneys mostly. Uh, the Republican majority in late December overturned uh, two highly controversial Obama-era decisions uh, called Browning-Ferris and specialty health care after the companies that, were, that the unions were going after in those cases. And the first case, Browning-Ferris, had instituted a restrictive standard to determine whether a company is a joint employer. When you, when you go to a McDonald's, with rare exceptions, you are going to it. The actual operator of the restaurant isn't McDonald's Corporation. It's a small business owned by you know, some guy who licenses the recipes, the branding, the building, the name, all from McDonald's Corporation. And what the SCIU, the Service Employees International Union, one of the largest labor unions in the United States, extremely left-wing, and one of the largest funders in American politics. One of, if not the largest funder in American politics. Uh, 
what they had wanted because they're looking for more membership, what they had thought that they would get and what a restrictive joint employer or a, a loose joint employer standard like the Obama administration and LRB had instituted would have given them, given them the opportunity to hold big McDonald's corporation liable for uh, employment law violations committed by Little McDonald's franchise in Topeka, Kansas. And the SEIU hoped that they would be able to use that as leverage to get Big McDonald's Corporation to force Little McDonald's in Topeka, Kansas to unionize. That is no longer the case. That is no longer operative. Uh, the National Labor Relations Board has gone back to its old standard, uh, which means that unless Big McDonald's Corporation is actively involved in the operation of Little McDonald's in Topeka, Kansas, then Big McDonald's Corporation is not a joint employer and cannot be held liable for any shenanigans committed by the, uh, by the general manager, owner, owner-operator of Little McDonald's in Topeka, Kansas. Now, and this is not just a ruling that matters uh, in fast food. I mean, obviously, when people think of franchise businesses, that's one of the first things they think of as fast food. But uh, it, it, multiple other industries uh, would be affected. Dry cleaning, uh, car dealerships, uh, all sorts of, of businesses have a franchise arrangement. Uh, also, subcontractors. Uh, were were potentially implicated in uh, in joint employment under the uh, Obama administration standard. They are no longer implicated. Uh, this is a it's a major revert it's a major reversion to the longstanding practice that the National Labor Relations Board had used. And then in specialty health care, the other major case, also a reversion to longstanding practice. The Obama administration in the specialty health care case had determined that a labor union could organize a small part of the workplace. It had taken a very narrow definition of what is called community of interest in determining who gets to be unionized, who the union is going to represent. The NLRB has to apply a rule called community of interest. So... Think of, a, think of a sales floor, um, and this is actually a real-world example from the NLRB during, before they reversed specialty health care. Sales floor at a department store. You have cosmetic salespeople, you have suit salespeople, you have uh, shoe salespeople, you have dress salespeople, let's say. The old rule was that the community of interest, the similar, the similar circumstances applied to all the salespeople. Under specialty health care, under the Obama administration, the union could organize just the cosmetic salespeople. And that gives the union an advantage in organizing because they can find the most aggrieved, the most motivated to unionize part of the workplace and organize it. And then from there, they can work out into the shoe salespeople and the dress salespeople and the suit salespeople. That is no longer operative. The National Labor Relations Board reversed that standard, went back to its old rule, which says that the entire sales floor, in, in this example, the entire sales floor is the community of interest and the, the, uh, the electorate 
for determining whether it's to be unionized. Yep. Now, uh, I think it's worth taking uh, a slightly further back glance for a moment. And we've been talking about the SEIU in this, uh, which, as we said, is one of the most powerful, um, uh, richest unions out there. Uh, they, it is understandable uh, that the Obama administration would have made uh, regulatory decisions like these two you've just discussed, because uh, the SEIU was such a critical component of the funding for both of Obama's election runs, but also the most uh, the SEIU was the most prominent actor in the fight over the single biggest policy issue for the Obama administration, which would be Obamacare. Um, they were the driving force behind the aggregation of activist groups known as Healthcare for America Now, or HCAN. Um, HCAN wouldn't have existed if it weren't for the SEIU, and should throw in uh, one particular donor, the Atlantic Philanthropies, uh, an offshore foundation um, with left-wing inclinations that put tens of millions of dollars into uh, the HCAN lobbying effort that finally did succeed uh, in passing uh, Obamacare. Well, uh, coming up to more recent items um, that are very much on uh, a dead center and the kind of thing that uh, Influence Watch once covers, uh, there have been changes in government money flows to special interest nonprofits. Uh, why don't you start with some of the developments at the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA? So. During the Obama administration, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, had a practice which became known as sue and settle. The environmentalist group, say the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is one of the biggest environmental groups, would sue the government saying that it had failed to regulate some environmentalist thing. And then the EPA, ostensibly the defendant, having been sued, would say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. We, we didn't regulate that thing. Uh, so let's have a settlement agreement where we agree to not only regulate that thing, but we're going to pay Natural Resources Defense Council's attorney's fees. Uh, running into the millions of dollars. Well, running into the six and seven figures easily. And in October, the new EPA administrator, uh, former Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt, who sued the EPA and did not settle on numerous occasions, <laughs> Uh, uh, ended the practice. Uh, no longer will the EPA use this sue-and-settle method to run taxpayer money into the legal arms of uh, left-wing environmentalist groups. No longer will it use settlements as a way to go around the normal notice and comment. All, par all interested parties at least get their say, even if they're going to lose the rulemaking uh, in rulemaking in, in the actual act Creating of, new regulations. Yeah, in the act of regulations. Yep. Now, there's a similar sort of thing going on at the new uh, Department of Justice. Tell us about that. So the Department of Justice had a similar but even potentially more shady practice, uh, which as of June, it no longer has. Uh, the Department of Justice had a, had a policy where if it was making a settlement with a corporation— uh, the sort of the mortgage cases that came out after the financial crisis were some of the bigger ones, if I'm, if I'm remembering this correctly. Uh, that if, let's say, Bank of America had been sued, that if they made a settlement, or 
if they had been charged by the, by the Department of Justice and they were going to agree to pay damages, that rather than paying the damages to the Treasury, or at least a substantial chunk of the damages that would have normally gone to the Treasury, they were instead ordered to pay it to third-party groups not involved in the case, but involved in the issue area. And lo and behold, it turned out that there was a long-standing, that there was a kind of standing order in the Obama administration Justice Department that these would go only to favored liberal groups. In fact, by name, emails that uh, were unearthed, I think, by, by Representative Goodlatte. Or by, I think it may have been our friends at Judicial Watch, but uh, we should double check that. Um, that those, uh, that they had specifically by name excluded the Conservative Public Interest Law Center of the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, and from, explicitly kept it out using the very word, the Conservative <laughs> Pacific Legal Foundation, just in case there was any just confusion. Just in case there was any confusion about why they were doing it. Um, that that practice uh, has has been ordered to cease yep. uh, by and, the by the Department of Justice. And I think there's a in in one other related area popping back to the Environmental Protection Agency, um, the EPA Administrator Pruitt uh, has announced his intention to end the practice of allowing. Uh, experts, or as we would perhaps prefer to say, influencers, who are on official EPA boards determining grants and other determinations from actually receiving uh, taxpayer uh, grants. Well, let's switch uh, a bit over to, that's, that's complicated regulatory issues. Let's switch into uh, the broader, more public uh, political fights of the past year. Uh, the first and most obvious one uh, is the recently passed uh, tax reform bill. Uh, tell us a bit about that. So uh, in late December, the Republicans in Congress got their, their tax reform bill through. Uh, it either will be or has been now signed by the president. Um, it will, by the estimations are that it will, by and large, cut taxes for most people, uh, with a few exceptions. Uh, High-income earners without children in high-tax states seems to be the the, the potential losers, if you're, but there's a you know a substantial credit for parents. There's a reduction in the rates for for most other people. And if you don't live in a high tax state, the changes to the state and local tax deduction uh, don't affect you or don't affect you very much. And if we can uh, be allowed a brief influence watch joke, um, high income individuals in high tax states are probably not a prominent demographic for the current. President, uh, there there has been some suggestion that the the they that they may have been uh, gone after, <laughs> um, in part because of their uh, of their political situation. Now, now, the charitable deduction, of course, is a very important component of tax law uh, that matters for folks who track the nonprofit sector the way that we do. Uh, what's happening with that? Well, the charitable deduction is staying as it is, but there's an asterisk there. The, the asterisk is that fewer people are likely to itemize their deduction, itemize their deductions, do the, the Schedule A and to write off all the little things, because the standard deduction has been doubled. Uh, so the, the changes to other provisions, and also the fact that the state and local tax deduction has been capped, may lead more people 
to file the simple standard deduction, no Schedule A, no, no sitting there collecting all your receipts, rather than going through all that, going through all that trouble to get the actual write-down. Um, however, there's, another aster- there's an asterisk to the asterisk which is that there were also changes to the alternative minimum tax, which is a tax provision that if you make a certain amount of money and have, a certain, have certain circumstances, rather than doing the regular 1040 and going your deductions, that you have to pay a special, it's not really an alternative minimum tax, it's the mandatory maximum tax. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they've raised the thresholds for that, so fewer, fewer taxpayers are probably going to be affected by it which means that they will then then be in a position theoretically to itemize, which means they may have charitable deduction to write down. So it's kind of it's kind of unclear what the what the effects will be, but the main charitable deduction has stayed and will remain you will still be able to if you itemize your deductions, which may change under the new law, you will be able to write down to the extent permissible by law your contributions to 501c3 organizations. Yes, well, and speaking of 501c3 organizations, there was another uh, part of the tax reform bill that will affect uh, nonprofits. Uh, two, uh, two others that particularly uh, make a difference, one uh, involving a surtax and the other involving the so-called Johnson Amendment. Why don't we start with the surtax? Sure. Uh, so in the final bill, there was a provision that if the highest paid employee uh, at a nonprofit organization is paid over a million dollars. Here you're thinking like university presidents, hospital chain presidents, uh, college football coaches. <laughs> that they would have to pay a they would have to pay a surtax. Uh, the justification being that you know the nonprofit status is supposed to be because you are not inuring benefit to your office you know to your officers in the form of profit. But if you're just inuring it as in the form of salary, is that really a good use of the tax exemption? So the that has been, uh, at least at that high level, has been has been curtailed somewhat. Yes. And then the other uh, provision that affects uh, nonprofits significantly is the so-called Johnson Amendment. Tell us a bit about where that comes from and uh, what's been done on it. Uh, sure. Back in the 1950s, I believe, uh, Lyndon Johnson, then senator from Texas, uh, instituted a provision in tax law that a church cannot endorse a candidate. A, uh, or if it does endorse a candidate, then it loses its tax status. The president and some Republicans in Congress had wanted to get rid of that. It had been in the original drafts of the bill. Uh, however, it was ruled ineligible for the Senate's reconciliation rules, which allow the tax bill to pass without breaking a Senate filibuster. Since it was passing on party line on a party line vote, Republicans don't have sixty votes; they can't just simply ram it ram through whatever they yeah, want. Sixty they votes to, being what's needed yeah. if if legislation has to be able to uh, jump the filibuster hurdle. Right. Uh, so, but. They don't. They didn't have those votes. They couldn't win those votes. So they had to follow all the fil- all the uh, all the reconciliation rules that allow them to to go around the filibuster, and those rules held that uh, they could not touch the Johnson Amendment. So that was what ultimately came out of the bill. Yep. And the um, of course uh, f- tell our uh, viewers and listeners. 
Johnson uh, was not exactly uh, disinterested in this particular tax provision. In one of his election campaigns uh, for the Senate, uh, a local church had strongly opposed him, uh, and he was very much aiming uh, to have no more of that troubling him. Uh, I, I have been on record uh, about the Johnson Amendment myself for, for some time. Uh, I think that it would be uh, the, the ideal policy in that area, if you want my opinion, is that uh, 501c3 public charities, which includes churches, that they uh, should be free to say what they wish, uh, which could include uh, endorsing a political candidate, but I think it would be very desirable to uh, curtail not their speech, but their actions. Uh, and currently, 501c3 public charities can register people to vote and can even bust them to the polls, uh, to get out the vote, as, uh, as it's called in the trade. Um, I'm, I'm a decadent libertarian, so I just repeal the corporate income tax. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, another, another way to uh, thread the needle. But the, um, I don't think most Americans even realize that charities— so-called charities, can and do register people to vote and bust them to the polls. Uh, it seems to me that it would be reasonable for that to be pushed over into the 501c4 category um, of organizations that exist to do such sure, things. Sure, especially given how clever political data operations have gotten, the notion of nonpartisan voter registration and nonpartisan civic participation activity Unless you're actually, like, you can demonstrably, yes, I helped this, you know, liberal demographic 10,000 voters, and I helped this conservative demographic 10,000 voters, unless there's something like that. With the sophistication of political data now, uh, the the nonpartisanship is even more in-name only than it often is in 501 yes. organizations. The, the idea was it was something like the... Uh, um, uh, the League of Women Voters putting up a card table in front of the grocery store or in the public park, um, and you know who knows who's going to come up. But that is not at all the way voter registration and uh, get out the vote efforts are conducted these days, uh, with the with the kind of massive micro targeting uh, and powerful data uh, work. In fact, the uh, I should say that one of the things when the uh, Soros uh, leaks came out. Uh, in the last year or two, uh, Capital Research Center, which sponsors InfluenceWatch.org and the InfluenceWatch podcast, was mentioned in there. And it was mentioned in a memo from Andy Stern, the then head of the SEIU that we've been talking about, and uh, Deepak Bhargava of uh, uh, Centers for Community Change. And it was written to George Soros and the other members of the Soros Foundation board and it was, uh, it was at the start of the 2012 presidential election cycle. It was begging them to invest, yet again, many millions of dollars in C3 groups to do voter registration and get out the vote because it thought that without that, there was no way they would be able to— it was very explicit. Without that, we will not be able to reelect uh, President Obama um, and many members, uh, Democratic members of Congress, which are needed for all of our policy goals that we're hoping to influence. Um, so this is not a small thing. I will say in this case, most of what we talk about, both sides are relatively similar in what they do. Um, in this case, uh, it actually is pretty rare for uh, conservative foundations to fund and conservative charities to execute. Um, 
voter registration and get out the vote. That is mostly done on conservative side by C4s, um, where it is less a, a less legally problematic. Uh, yeah, where 501c4 organizations, the trade-off is your donors can't write the contributions off their taxes, but 501c4s are allowed to intervene in elections in a in a manner showing uh, open favor to one candidate or the other, uh, which is prohibited to 501c3s. Yes. Now, uh, now, well, let's turn now to another branch of government that's not elected, the judiciary. Uh, in episode two, we spent uh, a good bit of time talking about uh, the influencers on both sides of judicial nominations uh, and the Senate battles for confirmation over those. Uh, can you remind our readers a bit of what they missed if they didn't see episode two? Sure. Uh, we discussed the, the, the battle over, over the appellate judicial confirmations uh, in the past year. Uh, the president and the Senate have gotten 12 uh, appellate, appellate ju- judges confirmed. Uh, which is since apparently since the beginning of the appellate courts, the most that a president has gotten in his first in his first year in office. Uh, and we looked at the both the conservative Federalist Society, which has uh, assisted the president in choosing nominees and in vetting uh, nominees for a strict constructionist originalist view of the law. Uh, and then also the liberal groups like the Alliance for Justice that have been leading the opposition and digging up opposition research, trying to uh, derail their confirmations. Yes. And at the district level, they've had some success, haven't they? Well, they've had some success, but not nearly as much as they have had at the appellate level. And in fact, uh, they a couple of district, district nominees had to withdraw uh, after it turned out that they had not uh, done as well in their confirmation hearings, or done as well in their um, in their materials provided to the senators on the judiciary committee that uh, then had been hoped. Yep. Uh, well, let's turn now to uh, what we can be expecting in the year ahead in influence. Uh, obviously, the alphabet soup of agencies of FCC, FEC, NLRB, EEOC, and the rest. Uh, some of those battles are, are being fought even as we sit here. Um, what are some of the things that uh, our listeners can expect? So with the commission, with these commissions, these independent commissions, the, the president's party gets a majority, with the exception of the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, which is evenly divided for the obvious reason that they don't want the election administrator to be partisan to the extent that that's possible. Um, but the, the Labor Relations Board we talked about earlier, the Federal Communications Commission, the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, the President's Party gets a, gets a majority, but the minority party, the opposition party, gets to have members on the board as well. And the, so there are vacancies on the EEOC. Uh, there are two, two Republican nominees pending. One Democratic nominee is pending. Uh, now, you have... You remarked about the, the, I guess you would say from a Democratic perspective, the stellar qualifications of the Democratic nominee. <laughs> yes. The, at the, uh, a, a highly influential uh, leading thinker and vigorous advocate uh, on that side. Um, and in fact, there are uh, conservative activist groups who are not pleased uh, at the trade of this one Democrat for two Republicans, which is the ostensible uh, deal being made in Congress. 
And, uh, and there's probably some truth to that, because the if the Democrats are willing to do that without any objection, um, then they must view it as a worthwhile trade on their part. And then these commissions also, the commissioners' terms don't perfectly align with the, cha with the presidential changeover cycle. So, uh, for instance, the chairman of the NLRB, Philip Misimara, uh, his term is expiring at the end of the year. He is not uh, he is he is stepping down. He is uh, he is stepping aside. So that will be a Republican vacancy on the labor board, that will need to be filled. Um, also, the Federal Elections Commission apparently is on the verge of losing quorum. There have to be four commissioners. There are only two who have their um, have their terms uh, that continue all the way through the next year. So the President and the Senate, uh, if they want the FEC to continue operating will need to nominate new FEC commissioners and get them through the Senate. And that's not looking good at the moment. Uh, well, let's turn to uh, legislative battles where influencers will be uh, quite prominent, um, probably one of the most uh, volatile and controversial with lots of groups on both sides. Uh, will be immigration, thanks to the uh, DACA fights and the rest. Tell us, uh, tell us what we can expect on that. Sure. So President Obama issued an order known as DACA, D-A-C-A, -A, uh, an acronym for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which gave a sort of pseudo-legal status to illegally present, uh, illegally present persons who met certain criteria about having been brought here as children and having certain establishing characteristics in the United States. It had been, there had been a lot of skepticism, uh, especially on, on the right, as to whether that was within the president's power to actually order. He had himself previously uh, excused himself from having done this thing much desired he, he by being his President base. Obama. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, President Obama had had previously said that he could not take this action, which was highly desired by many of his uh, own supporters, because he lacked uh, the legal authority to do it. Right. So the legal authority was contested. New president. Six, you know, a few months ago, it was decided that the. Uh, they would no longer defend. They would no longer defend the authority, and so what they did was they kicked it to Congress. President Trump, to what I would say is his credit, said, "You know, we don't really want to throw these people out. They're mostly good. You know, please come to some sort of agreement uh, to give them permanent and formal status, and then we won't have this sort of limbo situation that we've had for the past couple of years." Uh, the Democrats had. had at one point vowed to shut down the government if a clean reauthorization of the program was not included in the spending bill. That seems to not be what's going to actually happen. They seem to have stepped back from that demand. Uh, and a bipartisan uh, negotiating group has convened, has gone to the White House, asked the president, you know, what sort of border security concessions do you want? You know, do you need do you need part of the wall built, the 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 border, the border fence that the president uh, proposed constructing during his campaign, uh, but this is going to be this is going to be nastily fought over. Uh, there's there are numerous groups, uh, some which are interested in it for uh, you know financial and corporate reasons. Uh, the business community wants this settled in a fairly liberal manner. 
the labor unions see a bunch of possible future union members once everything is normalized. Uh, then you have the, uh, the, the ethnic interest groups on both sides, the anti-immigration groups, the very pro-immigration groups uh, who are going to be fighting with each other in a fairly nasty manner on this, on this issue. Uh, it and, sounds to me like it is worthy of a whole Influence Watch episode, and we probably will be doing that in the new year. I, I, I would project that there will be a that there will be at least one uh, on on the ongoing coming debate over yeah. immigration. And I, I will tease that with just uh, uh, we will see if anybody can guess the one single foundation that largely created a lot of the Latino uh, rights groups um, out of whole cloth. Uh, many decades ago. That's a that's a fascinating story of influence and influencers and funding. Um, well, in addition to uh, immigration, what are other legislative issues that are likely to be hard fought with influencers on both sides? So the White House uh, has expressed a desire to pass an infrastructure uh, an infrastructure spending bill that will be there will be uh, that'll be contested. Uh, as much on regional grounds as on ideological grounds. Uh, obviously, it'll be a big spending bill, so the free market groups would be inclined perhaps to oppose it. But, you know, New York and New Jersey are going to want more for rail. Texas and Utah are going to want more for roads. Um, and then some in Congress have uh, suggested that they maybe want to go after the third rail of American politics and actually try to reform entitlements. Uh, you know, again, you kind of wish them good luck, but... <laughs> yes, the, the influence groups will certainly be out uh, uh, the, for that. The, we, we, we will discover the full, you know, the, the, the death star of American politics might be the American, Associated of, American Association of Retired Persons. And if, uh, and if we go into welfare and entitlement reform, uh, I strongly suspect that they will show themselves to be a Death Star, um, which, of course, you know, we know what happens to the Death Star in the end of the movie, but, you know. <laughs> but it hasn't happened to uh, uh, AARP yet, sure. Well, of course, 2018 is also going to have a uh, midterm election. Uh, what is the outlook for that with our influence uh, perspective? So right now, uh, right now, the polling looks pretty good for the Democrats uh, in the midterm elections. This is, to an extent, normal. The president's party usually does badly in midterms. Uh, in fact, in every midterm election since 1994, when Newt Gingrich and the Republicans took control of Congress for the first time since the 50s, in all but one case, which was 2002, in all the midterms since 1994, except 2002, the president's party has either lost or failed to regain control of the U.S. House of Representatives. So the Democrats making gains would be to be expected. The way things have gone, there's been a lot of, a lot of angst about how the president has, has conducted himself in office. That has not helped the Republicans. Uh, some, of the side, some of the side matters, the election in Alabama, uh, have led to considerable amount of disgust with the Republicans. Uh, this has created an opening for the liberal influencers to rally, you know, register voters, rally the troops, uh, you know, recruit candidates, in on a level that has not 
you know, that has not previously been seen, uh, at least in recent years, during when Obama was president, when the Republicans had more enthusiasm during the off-year elections. Indeed. So we shall see if the uh, typical pattern holds or not. Uh, well, that's our show for this week and for this year. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube, and you can find our pages by searching for Capital Research Center. If you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week, next year.